the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Sergeant Christopher Murdy. While we were going through our workup training, our initial role was actually camp security. Before our confirmatory ex in Wainwright, about two or three weeks prior, they switched our role to convoy escort. So we took 34 light infantiers from the reserves and told them they're going to do mounted ops. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Before I get on to today's guest, I want to cover off some feedback. I've got a message on the website guestbook from Ron Ray. Ron Ray says, great idea, Mike. I came across your podcast through Facebook. Keep up the great work. And Ron says that he was a sergeant in 2RCR and in the military police from 1975 till 1995. So thanks for the feedback, and if you're interested in leaving a comment on the guest book, just go to CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca, click on the guest book link, and you can leave a comment there. Thank you, Ron. I also got a message from another member of the RCR, Brian Colgate, and he says that he and his wife babysat Mike Vernon, who was the guest on episode number one. Brian Colgate says that it was great to hear my initial podcast, and he's also making a suggestion for a future guest. So this future guest that he's suggesting started off with the Royal Regiment of Canada, transferred to the British Army into the SAS, and returned to Canada, and finished off his career with the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada. So I'm going to be reaching out to the suggested guest, and hopefully I can get that story on the podcast. From the beginning of the Age of Warfare, people have always understood that an army moves on its stomach. And the purpose of that is to identify the fact that military troops and military formation rely on their supply chains to keep them equipped and to keep the forward troops fed and replenished. Even the Roman legions understood the value of a good supply chain and good replenishment. So convoy escort has never been something new to the military. My guest today, Sergeant Christopher Murdy, was responsible for developing some of the current practices that were used in Afghanistan in order to protect those vital convoys. Sergeant Christopher Murdy comes from London, Ontario, and he joined the Army in 1999. He serves with the 4th Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, and the 4th Battalion is based in London, which is essentially the hometown of the Royal Canadian Regiment. He holds an honours bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Western Ontario, and his military qualifications include infantry machine gunner and small arms coaching. Now, although he has achieved the rank of warrant officer in the Canadian Forces and in 4RCR, he currently holds the rank of sergeant, and that's merely based on his current employment. So the position he holds is that of a sergeant, and in order to hold that position, he had to relinquish his rank of warrant officer. The role that he holds right now is regimental quartermaster of the 4th Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, and in that role, he not only provides support to the day-to-day operation of 4RCR, but also to the Battle School, which is based out of London. So here's my interview with Sergeant Christopher Murdy. Sergeant Murdy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I've been looking forward to this. Sergeant, you and I have never met, but I got in contact with you through my counterpart in 31 Canadian Brigade Group, Chief Warrant Officer David Elliott. 
Yes, Chief Warrant Officer Dave Elliott, he has been a fixture in our brigade for <laughs> for quite some time and for my entire career, 15 years in the military, and he was pretty much there from day one, coming up through the ranks as a platoon warrant and sergeant major and then DSM and then RSM and now on to a brigade Chief Warrant Officer. Yeah, we've had <laughs> we've had him around for quite some time as a key figure, yeah. Well, you're not getting rid of him because he's been named as the successor into the appointment of Divisional Reserve Sergeant Major. So he'll be working at the divisional level and his AOR will expand from not only the London-Windsor area, but right out through the entire province. So that's good on him. Yeah, that's, that's excellent news for the Army on the whole, really. He's a very knowledgeable fellow and has a lot of contacts and a lot of, a lot of experience. It should serve us well. Absolutely. Now, have you had a chance to review the questions? I have. I have, yes. Excellent. Are you ready to go? Let's go. All right. So why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? Okay. In a nutshell, you know, we all talk about uh, having a variety of reasons. For me, it started out as a break from the norm, if you will. It was new experiences, new opportunities. I had worked in service jobs and that sort of thing, fast food, this and that, Joe jobs and janitorial and groundskeeping and you know, those sorts of jobs that a lot of us do when we're, we're students and such. And I was coming to the end of my university tenure and wanted something new. And the Army had always been in the back of my mind from a, from a young age. My great uncle served in World War II as a signaler. And when I was younger, about, up until about the age of seven, I would say, our next door neighbor, he was a former RCR in the Germany, Cyprus, London days. He had taken me to an open house, actually, and uh, kind of put the bug in my uh, ear, much to my mom's chagrin, I guess, <laughs> at an early age. It kind of went on the back burner for a number of years. And then in about 1998, I did some volunteering here and there and did some stuff trying to find a new experience. And I came across the existence, really, of the reserves. It wasn't really something that was widely publicized, it seems. Nobody I knew knew about it. I can't actually recall how I discovered it, but that was my ticket. When I did some research and went to recruiting, and yeah, that was kind of my ticket to get that experience. And I've stuck with it ever since. Excellent. What year was that? By the time I finally got through and sworn in, it was February 99. Chris, what was the world like when you joined? Oh, the late 90s. We're talking the, the Bosnia area, the, the fall of all the communist blocs and that sort of thing, and to jump into the variety of peacekeeping operations and that orientation to our foreign policy back then, Bosnia, Somalia, those days. So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of prior to 9-11, it was a lot of extended missions, Canadian forces going every which way, and there seemed like a lot of opportunities to branch out and maybe see the world and go and do stuff. But shortly after joining, there was a big change there with, yeah. with 9-11. So that was pretty much the era. There was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of opportunity, and the focus if you will, that we got as new recruits was we're still in the peacekeeping era. We're still in the, uh, you know, we have to be prepared for everything and the jack of all trades, if you will. But we really did start to narrow things down and focus things a few years later. Right. Absolutely. What were you like when you joined? I would say that I was more of a mature person than the average recruit. Remember, I was late in my university career. I had some work experience and that sort of thing. So I was going on 24 when I actually went through the QL2, QL3 program and got my infantry course. I had a little bit of work experience, so good work ethic, pretty responsible, pretty smart guy, university education and that sort of thing. I wouldn't say that I struggled with it, but there was some key individuals that we'll probably talk about in a little bit later on that made sure that we were challenged. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Sergeant, what's your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Okay. Broad strokes, it's my operational tour in Afghanistan. Bar none. I mean, I've done a lot of things in the military, been a lot of places and that, but I've only done one tour, but it was enough. <laughs> I was with Task Force 306 in Afghanistan, Kandahar province in 2006-2007. I deployed with the NSE in the Force Protection Platoon. What is NSE? National Support Element. And we had kind of the, the unique tour. It was uh, the one that... I don't know how to word it, but it it basically solidified certain roles within the Kandahar task group, right? if you will. They had just done the switch down down south from Kabul within the previous tour and a half. And while we were going through our workup training, standard six-month workup training in Petawawa, our initial role was actually camp security. And before our confirmatory ex in Wainwright... Uh, ironically enough, about two or three weeks prior, they switched our role to an entirely different realm, which was uh, we moved into convoy escort. So we took 34 light infantiers from the reserves and told them you're going to do mounted ops. <laughs> and we're going to go train and, and confirm your skills in the next three weeks. So huge challenge right off the bat. So we hit the books, tried to find anybody that we could that knew a little bit about that role, just kind of took it over and, and ran with it and made it our own. Of course, the book never really jived because resources are different, manpower is different, and everything else. We had to adapt it a lot. And without the help of some key individuals at at CMTC and within the the national support element, the supply and transport types, the armored types that that were with us, we really had to adapt things and make that job our own, if you will. From there, once we actually deployed, we were learning on new vehicles and that because we had the uh, the RG31s were just coming into theater. And it was, again, a a very challenging operation, a very challenging job where we were constantly learning and adapting and such. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the book because as far as what I was told in preparing for this episode is that you wrote the book on convoy escort. And perhaps you're you're a little bit too humble to take credit for it, but... (laughs) Other people have given you credit for that. So well on you. That's fantastic. I, I appreciate that. I mean, like I said, it was a lot of it was, was adapting things. But I will say that what we as a team wrote and came up with, because it was, it was a committee, I will say that. It wasn't, the tactics weren't dictated to us. It was kind of like constant after action reports and, and reviews and, and, you know, and committee discussions. Okay, well, did this work? Did that work? And that sort of thing. So some people would give me more credit than maybe I'm due, but I did have a key hand in it, but I wasn't alone by, by any means. And we never are. We never <laughs> are. We always work as a team. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes when we give someone individual recognition, it does reflect on the team as well. Yeah, absolutely. In this case, there was a lot of people advising us. As I said, we were, we were in constant flux in terms of adapting to new situations and new resources. So if it wasn't the supply system, the maintenance system, or the enemy <laughs> challenging us, yeah, we wouldn't have been so successful. We were well equipped both in knowledge and equipment right. for the role. I thought about the, uh, you know, when you when you talked about the greatest experiences and that sort of thing, and I thought about telling a few more stories about Afghanistan, I thought, you know what, let's, we'll see where it goes and just kind of play it out. But really, I think, I mean, anybody can sit down, I mean, there's thousands of us, right, that have, that have been in Afghanistan, and there's thousands of stories and everything else about IEDs and, you know, and contacts here and there and that sort of thing. And Lord knows, you know, we went through our fair share. But I think my biggest thing was to kind of highlight how our role changed so late in the workup training, giving us very little. We only had maybe six to eight weeks of training right. on convoy ops and then went and had to do this for the entire province. 
and there was three of us. <laughs> There's three of us that led these groups. And Bot Medusa, all those big operations in, in 06 and 07. And we were on the road almost every day right. for three months straight. And it was, bar none, the most challenging thing I, I've ever done. Right. And yet, when I think back to me sitting in an RG and traveling down the road, I, you know what? I didn't really feel challenged. We were so confident in what we were doing. And the tactics, I mean, every single one of the tactics in the TTP book, we tested Unfortunately, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like the different types of contacts, vehicle breakdown, roadblocks, this, that, the other thing. Like we tested them all and verified them, and then continued to expand on them. So, yeah, my biggest thing was this is what we have in the reserves. We have this pool of people that, from early beginnings as recruit and then onwards, we get cobbled together and form teams and competent teams readily. Because that's just what we do. That's the nature of the beast in the reserves. Right. And you can give us a role, and as long as we have a little bit of time to train on the actual equipment, we can <laughs> we can pretty much accomplish anything as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's just the key. Resources is the key. And you know, most of us talk about people being the, the chief resource, and that's proofs in the pudding. Yeah, absolutely. The amount of augmentees that we sent and the amount of... I mean, my tour, 4RCR sent uh, six or seven people. For a variety of tasks right two of them were with me and the rest had like headquarters positions and that sort of thing the next tour in 08 we sent an entire platoon right so at the beginning of the mission we sent two here three here that sort of thing mine had six and then after that it just exploded because the right force was already tired yeah so who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered I mentioned, well, we've mentioned Chief Officer Dave Elliott. Like I said in the intro, he, he's been around in my career for its entirety, really. And he started out as platoon warrant of my recruit platoon, challenged us incessantly. And his staff actually would count as my other big influences. And most of them have gone on to bigger and better things as their careers have progressed. And I've really tried to model a lot of my leadership styles, if you will, on how they treated us. And it's, it's not a matter of, you know, the full metal jacket abuse and, and challenges, you know, right. but just the level of knowledge, the dedication, the confidence, the ability to impart knowledge. Those are the things that I really took from these people. They really taught us how to take skills and adapt them to, to situations and how to have that whole old uh, adage of adapt and overcome, right? They, they really instilled that into us right from the get-go. And we know that personal leadership abilities and that sort of thing are sometimes are inherent. A lot of them can't be taught. That's why we try to be a little bit more selective in who we choose for leadership positions. A lot of the foundations on styles and how to go about it, once you have it, those things, I firmly believe, come from our influences and our, our mentors. Right. Yeah, I would say Chief Officer Dave Elliott is, is a big one for me, formerly MWO Griffiths, now Captain Griffiths. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah just uh, recently. <laughs> he went to the dark side, did he? <laughs> just recently went to the dark side, yeah. Yeah, that was a sad day for the battalion, it was. <laughs> uh, Lee Matheson, I'm not sure what his rank is, he's, he's in Ottawa now. And has been for a number of years. Warrant Rob Potter, these guys were my key influences. They were really strong figures. Uh, Jay Zilke, I can name a bunch of these people, and it would take me back to fond memories of even being in the thick of things and being challenged. And I used the word challenged as a euphemism, if you will. <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, these are the guys that set the bar high right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I remember as a young sergeant, without getting into my own episode here, I remember teaching alongside Dave Elliott 
Griffiths and Rob Talek, and we were all young sergeants, and we were all teaching in Meaford for the summer. And they were good people to set your own moral compass off of. Just by observing their behavior, seeing what they were doing, you knew where to set your own left and right of arc. And it was easy to work with them and work in sync with them because they're pretty good sound judgment and reasonable people. Definitely, definitely. Just those three names there. You've got a, a brigade sergeant major that's that's going up to area. You have a former RSM that is now the RSM of the battle school and, and 31 brigade. And you have a captain now who is a key person in the area standards. Right. There's there's three really positive influences on at least the Army in southwestern Ontario, if not uh, in Ontario as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I recall, uh, well, two of those three anyway, teaching on my recruit course. And I think back to when I started instructing, becoming a new master corporal and, and instructing and, and having access to some of the, the trade secrets, if you will. Yeah. And I remember talking to uh, Chief Officer Elliot about my recruit course. And he let me in on a secret. And I found out <laughs> how they were able to challenge us so effectively. We're talking the days when tear gas was a legitimate motivator. And <laughs> he <laughs> let me in on the secret that for that course, he went to the ammo compound in, in Meaford and asked if he could request tear gas. And they said, yes, how much would you like? And he said, how much can I have? And I said, you're the only one to ask for it. So he said, all right, give me what you got. <laughs> And they used to crack open the cans of tear gas grenades while we were having our meals and just taunt us with us, like, don't mess up. And they'd fill their pockets and, and everything else. <laughs> and uh, yeah, sure enough, every, anybody that fell asleep on shift or anybody that wasn't moving fast enough, yeah, I, I think I could still do my gastrils in my sleep if I had to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. But um, yeah, I remember digging trenches in top high that was always a great experience with the sun blazing down. Yes. Not being able to breathe in your full bunny suit with a gas mask on. And yeah, just had to do it. <laughs> well, that's right. I think back and I, and I look at how they, they taught us to instinctively react. And, and that's the whole aim of basic training, right? Is, is using your drills and instinctively reacting. And then I think back to my experiences overseas. And with a little bit of tweaking and development and experience by that time, being a sergeant, having a section and then having a convoy group and, and what have you, being able to react under pressure and, and, and that, even though the role is totally different from what we were normally or what I had been training to do for the previous 10 years of my career, the basic ability to react and adapt and overcome and stay calm and keep your wits about you, that came right from the get-go. That's right. I don't think we'd be allowed to motivate our young soldiers today with tear gas. I think someone might get upset if we tried that right now. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> when used properly, it is a good motivator and it is an effective tool. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's get on to the last question here. What is the greatest challenge you've had to overcome in the Army? My greatest challenge, I think on the whole, when I look back and I did a little bit of self-reflecting prior to this, was the issue of time. Time in the reserves is precious because we never have enough of it. I've worked with the regular force, I've done full-time gigs for quite some time, and having that time, having the luxury of being able to just turn over and start talking to your people and, and gathering them close and imparting the knowledge that needs to get imparted and having the time to do so thoroughly, that is paramount. 
our jobs have an inherent risk for a lot of the things that we do. And being able to teach people properly and thoroughly and, and giving them the necessary tools so that they can go on and do the same with another group, training our future leaders and such, that's a tough gig in the reserves. There's never enough time. There's never enough resources to expand on things. It's kind of get on the bus and, uh, and get out there and do it and learn through the fire hose, if you will. Right. So I would say the, my greatest challenge is because I'm, I'm a teacher at heart. I'm a civilian teacher by trade as well, though I'm not doing that currently. My biggest thing, I think, my biggest role, my personal role, I think, has been to use my experience, because I've been fortunate to do so many different things, has been to try and pass on as much of that knowledge as possible. The challenge has been time. It's been having enough time to, to get it all out and in a format that the subordinates can use. Right. Well, every time someone mentions that an Army reservist is entitled to 37 and a half days of training, and that doesn't include courses, teaching on courses, being a candidate on courses, or special details such as heading up to Ottawa to participate in the ceremonial guard, that's not included. Mm -hmm. But those 37 and a half days are, like you just said, very precious. And it's tough when you're a junior leader and you have a training schedule to get through, and then somebody says... Well, we have to incorporate control goods training into tonight's activities. And you look at your watch and you go, wow, <laughs> that's definitely a challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's always something coming up. And people like you who find the ways to make that happen and still accomplish your aim and still accomplish what's being passed down by the chain of command. The amount of creativity you bring to something like that is always appreciated, whether you're in 31 Brigade or 32 Brigade. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Chris, we've come to the end of the episode. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? Is there anything special that you're working on right now or any projects or anything that 4RCR might be doing in the near future that you want to highlight or let people know about? Well, 4RCR is currently running courses internally, but I think our major ceremonial thing would be the commemoration of the War of 1812. The battalion got it, two more battle honors added on Detroit and Niagara. So we've had some ceremonial functions for that, and there's a couple of other events upcoming, as well as our regimental stuff. We've got a new commemoration of the museum expansion, the RCR Museum expansion in London. I haven't had a chance to go there. I've always wanted to go in, and I've been to London several times, but I've never taken the opportunity to actually visit your museum, and I'm sure it's quite impressive. It, it's something else. They've, a lot of new interactive displays and, and that sort of thing have been added. They've, they've pumped a lot of money into that. All levels of government have gotten involved, thankfully, so it's, uh, it, it's, it is something to see. There's some good displays in there as well. Where is it located? It's on the Wolsey Barracks. It's actually right there. It's part of the A-Block complex, and it's 150-year-old building that they've been <laughs> maintaining for, for quite some time. That's right. So that's where we're leaning right now, is continuing to build the unit, adding courses and that sort of thing and getting people qualified for various roles and that. And then we've got our series of ceremonial events. I mean, all the regiments have their own, but uh, we've had a few extra ones this year that have tied up quite a bit of time. Yeah. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to say or anything you'd like to reflect on about your service in the Canadian Forces? Yeah, I'd just like to say that I appreciate what you're doing here. I do appreciate the access to a venue where people can tell their stories and create a living memory, if you will, of some of the stuff that happens both at home and in the life of the Army, if you will, and then in the 
the foreign context in terms of what we're doing overseas, uh, it, it's important. And, and there's a lot of lessons learned there that don't often come down the pipe on the official channels. And sometimes just sitting down with people and hearing what they've accomplished or what they've got, what they've been through can sometimes lead to some answers to questions that we might have in terms of how to deal with things and that sort of thing. I, I listened to the podcast from Joey Minnick and found myself recalling my experiences in Afghanistan and some of the similarities and that sort of thing. And I actually recalled meeting him uh, at one point in time. Right. I think we had a we had a conversation up on top of Spur Van Gar one time in, in the OP. But, you know, it's interesting who you meet and, and when you hear stories and they tell, talk about certain people and, and that. So it's a, it's a very interesting project, and, and I appreciate you having me on here. Well, I think it's become more than what I initially imagined, and I feel very privileged to be able to be the custodian of people's stories and people's memories. And the fact that you would trust a complete stranger, despite the fact that I'm a brigade sergeant major and a chief warrant officer still, you would trust a complete stranger with your experiences and open up. And that's what I've been finding with everyone. And it is a privilege. It's something that I do take seriously, and and I do enjoy doing it. And it's always enjoyable to talk to people and tell old stories and, and things of that nature. So this this is this is all good well that's excellent thank you well chris thanks for taking the time to be a guest on the show and the next time i'm in london i will definitely take time out to visit the rcr museum at the wolseley barracks and hopefully you can be my tour guide because we still haven't met yet so we got to find a way to make that happen well, i look forward to that take care thanks thank you thank you for listening to the canadian military history podcast i hope that you've enjoyed this episode If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.